and we can hope that government bureaucrats are going to do what's optimal, what's what's best for everybody, but they have their own interests. They tend to try to maximize their budgets, and also they have an incentive not to solve problems, because if they do, they might work themselves out of a job. Hello and welcome to the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, I'm your host, and today we're gonna to be talking about Nobel Prize winning economist, James Buchanan. Joining me for this conversation is Dr. Randall Holcomb. Dr. Holcomb is the DeVoe Moore Professor of Economics at Florida State University. He's a senior fellow at the James Madison Institute and the Independent Institute. He's a research fellow at the Law and Economics Center at George Mason University the author of hundreds of academic articles and many books, especially the one that I use for my own public choice class, Advanced Introduction to Public Choice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Randy. It's good to see you. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be with you, Rosie. I'm looking forward to learning from one of my former professors about one of their former professors. You were a student of Buchanan, is that correct? I was. And can you tell me a little bit about you know what Jim Buchanan was like as a person, a little bit about how he was as a teacher? Oh, there's probably a lot to say there. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the one, you know, one sense, uh, Jim Buchanan was the perfect gentleman, Southern gentleman. Uh, he wore a coat and tie to class. Um, always seemed like uh, maybe a little bit unapproachable. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he had so much insight, uh, uh, so intelligent. Um, as a teacher, he, he was really great as a teacher. Uh, and uh, he, he didn't give like the most dynamic lectures, but one thing that I really took away from, from his class uh, when students would ask questions, uh, bring up points, uh, and he would encourage them to do so, uh, students would bring up ideas, and sometimes those ideas, you know, something students said, would one of my classmates said, would seem to me a little off base, you know, like, um, oh, cringe a little bit, how could he? But Buchanan would take that idea, whatever whatever somebody was saying, or whatever ideas students had, Buchanan would take that idea and he'd say, well, you know, if you think about it this way and you develop it along these lines and so forth, he could take any idea and develop it into a good idea. And that was so instructive in the classroom, you know, to see, you know, you start with something that's pretty raw material and you could see Buchanan thinking through it and developing any idea into a, a good idea. So, I mean, in that sense, um, you know, his, his class was, was very instructive, not just about economics, but how to think through issues. And probably how to be an effective teacher. I can't imagine the kind of welcoming environment that must have created. Uh, it's very nerve wracking to test your ideas out in front of a room full of people. Um, so that's very supportive of him. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, being around Buchanan was always a little bit intimidating. Uh, I, I mean, even after I graduated, uh, spending time with him, talking with him, I was always pretty careful about what I was 
of what I was saying. And, uh, you know, you hear this, this phrase larger than life. Uh, and maybe Buchanan uh, fit that pretty well. Uh, and I've, I've heard him say in the past, I think I was not the only one who felt this way around him. I've talked to other people who, who say the same thing. Uh, and I, I, I remember hearing him say that he would really like it if people would just treat him like an ordinary individual. I remember him telling stories about you know, driving his car by a vegetable stand in the side of the road. And he gets out and he's bargaining with the vendor there about what to buy. And, you know, he makes a remark uh, that to, to me, you know, well, you know, the vendor doesn't think of him as a Nobel laureate in economics. Or there's just two individuals uh, who are dealing with each other. And, you know, he said, well, that's the way he likes to, to deal with people. Um, but uh, in fact, you know, especially among academics, we knew he was a Nobel laureate. And even before he won the Nobel Prize, uh, I mean, he was uh, uh, intimidating a little bit. Uh, he was very demanding of himself and of others. I mean, he was an extremely hard worker. He'd show up where he was the first one in the office in the morning, last one to leave in the evening. Uh, and uh, he expected a similar work ethic of his students and his colleagues. Yeah, that's, that seems to be one thing that I hear many of his former students saying that he was just incredibly hardworking, always at his desk, trying to write and he was very prolific even, even to the very end of his career yes yes he was um he had quite a few intellectual homes throughout his career including florida state which i found that out when i was a student there myself there was a statue of uh jim buchanan on campus and i hadn't realized that he had been at florida state but he was also um, at UVA and Virginia Tech and GMU. Um, you know, he jumped around a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, the development of his career, um, you know, the centers that he started at some of these various institutions? Well, I, I think he was looking for opportunities. Uh, um, you know, uh, when he was here at, at Florida State, he left for the University of Virginia. Uh, and he had the opportunity then to start the Thomas Jefferson Center there at the University of Virginia, um, which was uh, based on the classical liberal ideas that Buchanan had, had held since graduate school. Uh, so it was a good opportunity for him to move to the University of Virginia, establish a center, uh, and you know, more than just him working on these ideas. He had a group of people, a group of intellectual colleagues who were helping to develop the classical liberal ideas uh, that he wanted to develop and also to develop economics uh, and in the way that he wanted to develop it. Of course, you know, uh, continuing to develop his ideas on public choice. Uh, and he did... Um, you know, he ran into some friction at the University of Virginia uh, that uh, not everybody on the faculty, and I'm not talking about the economics faculty, but the university more generally, uh, a lot of people weren't supportive of, of what they were doing. Uh, and, and because of that, uh, he left the University of Virginia. 
he spent a year at UCLA uh, and then moved to Virginia Tech where he established the Center for Study of Public Choice. Uh, and really the three individuals who were pivotal in establishing the center were Jim Buchanan himself, Gordon Tullock, uh, and uh, Charlie Getz, who was a, a PhD student at Buchanan's at the University of Virginia. So the three of them organized that Center for Study of Public Choice. Uh, and essentially the idea was to use the same tools of economic analysis that economists use in, to analyze markets, use those same tools to analyze political decision-making. And that's really kind of, if you wanted to sum up Buchanan's you know, project as a whole, it's really to kind of take those tools of economics and apply them to, to that decision-making realm that is a non-market, non-priced environment. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, well, I want to talk a lot about that, actually. Um, so can we talk about some of the kind of foundations of, of public choice or kind of the, the starting points? Uh, you mentioned in the very first chapter, you mentioned the organismic versus the individualistic concept of collective choice. And that seems to be kind of at the it seems to be, it sounds at first like a minor point, but it's really at the heart of a lot of public choice. Sure. Uh, and uh, a lot of times, you know, by shorthand, we will talk about groups making decisions, groups having preferences, uh, you know, Congress will decide this, um, that, uh, you know, Republicans think that. Sometimes we'll talk about uh, ethnic groups. Uh, you know, talk about Hispanics, believe this or think that. Uh, and one of the key ideas that lays at the foundation of, of Buchanan's work is that groups don't make decisions, uh, groups don't take actions, individuals do. Uh, so sometimes there'll be a lot of commonality among individuals in a group, but we can't really say Congress is taking any actions. It's the individual's within Congress, individual members of Congress. Those are the people who make decisions. Those are the people who take actions. Uh, now, sometimes a collective decision uh, will be made by the group, but it's not Congress that's making the decision. It's all the individual members of Congress. And then we have a mechanism that aggregates all of the individual decisions of the members of the group uh, into a collective decision. Uh, so, and that, that individualistic idea, uh, I mean, it plays out one way when you look at groups making decisions, but it also applies when we talk about group preferences. I mean, because a lot of times we'll talk about uh, uh, ethnic groups having preferences, uh, but they don't. I mean, individuals who are members of those groups have preferences. So, not all Hispanics, not all Asians have the same views on things. So we, it's a, a, a potentially misleading shorthand to talk about groups having preferences. It's individuals who have preferences. It's individuals who make decisions. And so, you know, like I said, it, it seems like a, a minor thing at first, but how does shifting from that kind of aggregated group level thinking 
to thinking more about the individual, how does that shift the analysis of, of how, you know, public policy works or how government action works? Yeah, we, what we need to do is to look at the actions that individuals take and look at the way those actions are, are aggregated. And if you think specifically about Buchanan's development of public choice, which we might define as using the tools of economics to analyze political decision-making. Um, a lot of times, again, going back to this distinction we were making between individual action and collective action, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, we'll argue that, that government should do this or, or, or you know, here, here's the decisions we'd like to see Congress to make. Uh, and what we tend to do, and this, if I go back and talk a little bit more about economic analysis, Absolutely. a lot of times we look at economics before public choice. Mm -hmm. There's a tendency, well, more than a tendency, sort of the, the way that economists looked at public policy was to analyze issues that might arise in the market, why markets don't always work perfectly, uh, and then, and then say, well, the government should do something about this. That we, as as economists, uh, we would find optimal resource allocations. You know, if there's a public good that might be underprovided, we would derive mathematical conditions to say, here's the optimum. Um, if there's an externality, which some people imposing costs on others. We would derive the optimal conditions for correcting the, the externality. And then we would say, government should do that. Government should implement that optimal solution. And when we make that jump, see, we're using tools of economic analysis to see how the market works. And sometimes there are problems with the market. We're using our tools of economic analysis to ferret them out. But then before public choice, we'd say, so the government ought to, implement this optimal solution. So we're dropping economic analysis and we're substituting wishful thinking, right? Here, here's the optimal solution. Government should do that. Well, there, there's no social science in that. There's no economic analysis. There's no political science in that. We're substituting economic, wishful thinking for economic analysis. So Buchanan says, Let's use those same tools of economic analysis to look at the way that government makes decisions. So we look at individuals and uh, in, in, in government. We can talk about elected officials, legislators, bureaucrats, uh, and also on the uh, other side of the political marketplace, look at lobbyists, look at voters. You know, so we think about the way individuals make decisions. And so, it, you know, if we, if we move away from that wishful thinking, what keeps government from implementing the optimal solutions? Well, really, we can boil that down into two things, information and incentives. Uh, so first of all, think about, about information. People in government don't always have the information to find the optimal solution. So in theory, we can say, here's a public good that's being underproduced in the market. And here we derive the optimal solution. And wishful thinking says government should do that. 
But the problem is that the information we need to know about what the optimal amount of the public good is, it's not, it's not available to anybody. So, so government can't implement the optimal solution there uh, because they don't have the information. So that's one problem, information. You know, we want government to do good things, but it might not have the information available to do it. The second problem is incentives, that um, even if they have the information, people in government don't always have the incentive to, to do what's in the public interest. Now, the popular press uh, knows this. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll report stories about some government program or some initiative uh, and and the popular press will say, well, you know, here's a politician who's just doing this in order to get political support or to get votes. It's really not not the best thing for the country, but you know, it's a political move in order to to gain votes or gain support. Uh, okay, so the press knows elected officials aren't always doing what what's in the public interest because sometimes their own private interests are different. And it's the same thing with government bureaucrats. I mean, we can hope that government bureaucrats are going to do what's optimal, what's what's best for everybody, but they have their own interests. I mean, uh, uh, they want to have higher pay. Uh, they like the prestige of their jobs. They want to build their agencies. They tend to try to maximize their budgets. And also they have an incentive not to solve problems because if they do, they might work themselves out of a job, right? I mean, if you're hired... Uh, as a government bureaucrat, your bureaucracy has a job to do, you know, certain things. If you solve those problems, you're going to be out of a job. So the so, DEA doesn't really want to win the war on drugs. Exactly. Exactly. A great example. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it's interesting you think about the war on poverty that we've been fighting since the 1960s. Uh, and at least according to official government statistics, the poverty rate is about the same now as it was back when the war on poverty was initiated. Uh, but we're not, you know, we're still going to fight that war. And there's a lot of government bureaucrats whose jobs depend on it. So, so, so anyways, if we step away from that, uh, that wishful thinking, you know, the way that here's the optimum thing and let's wish that the government would do that. We step away from that. And the, the two problems that, that keep us, from getting to those optimal solutions. Information isn't always available to get there and the incentives aren't always right for the people who are decision makers. So, and that's where public choice comes in big time is looking at the incentives of legislators, of bureaucrats, of lobbyists, you know, and, and we make the assumption all the time in markets, but people do what's in their own best interest. Let's keep that assumption and think about what's in the best interest of government decision makers. Uh, and uh, public choice starts from that idea. Let's look at the actions of individuals. Let's look at the incentives they have and not, not look at government programs by what we wish government would do. Let's look at the incentives and see what government actually has an incentive to do, what the people who are making decisions actually have an incentive to do. One of the things that always kind of, you know, surprises my students when we talk about public choice is that, you know, a key insight is that just swapping out the people who are in office and changing the people who are holding bureaucratic positions 
isn't likely to drastically change the outcomes of, of the political process. It's the institution. So I always tell them, don't hate the players, hate the game. Um, and that kind of seems like, you know, the, the main message of, of public choice. Yeah. Is it okay if I have a little bit of disrespect for the players? Oh, definitely. You can disrespect the players for sure. Um, it takes a particular kind of person to want to play the game to begin with. <laughs> um, but yeah, so politics, uh, one kind of theme that is emerging from this conversation is Buchanan is viewing politics as an exchange process, almost like a market. But there are some key differences between that market and political process that lead to some different results. Can you talk about some of those key differences? Yeah, I, I, would, be, I would be happy to. Uh, and in a sense, you know, Buchanan liked that phrase, politics is exchange. Uh, and uh, I, I think in some ways he was a little bit overly optimistic about the way that, that politics is exchange uh, operates. Because indeed, when you, when you look at uh, a lot of political activity, uh, it's not that it's like a marketplace. It is a marketplace and there are actual exchanges that take place. So, and again, this is generally known by the public uh, that legislators, when they're trying to get legislation passed, uh, they'll go around and solicit their colleagues to try to get votes. I'll vote for your program if you'll vote for mine. Uh, so there's an actual exchange that takes place. There's an actual political marketplace. Um, and the medium of exchange there is, is votes. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as I'll vote for your program, you vote for mine. Other times it's a little more complex. Sometimes IOUs are created. Uh, so if I'm a legislator, I come to you and say, Rosie, I really want your support on this issue. You know, can I get your vote on this issue? And you agree. Okay, so I've got one more vote behind me, but I've also accumulated an IOU. You've done me a favor. And so that opens the opportunity for you to come back to me and say, remember when I voted for your uh, bill uh, before? Now I want your vote on my bill. Uh, and I have to pay up because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to engage in political exchange anymore. Right. I mean, in, in Congress, in the legislature, it takes a majority in order to ultimately get something done. So you always need the support of other people. And so if I ask for your vote, you give me your vote. I've incurred an IOU. And again, this politics is exchange, right? So you can come back and call in the debt and it works just like a political marketplace. Uh, so there's, there's that aspect, uh, but there's about uh, politics as exchange is broader than that because it's not only legislators who are involved in exchange, uh, lobbyists and uh, uh, you know, corporate interests, uh, they're involved in exchange also. You know, they'll, uh, they will come, uh, lobbyists will come to a legislator uh, and say, you know, we want this particular legislation passed. We'd like to see this legislation passed. Uh, and uh, legislators are going to be inclined to help out those lobbyists who in turn help out the legislator. And so, I mean, sometimes 
uh, it's a, a, a blatant kind of political exchange. You know, a lobbyist will come in and talk with a legislator. You know, here's what I, here's what my client would like to have done. Let's say, yeah, we're, we're going to take that up next week. So I'm certainly going to consider your view. Oh, and by the way, my political action committee is having a little reception on Tuesday night. And we'd love it if you could come. And everybody knows it's the unspoken politics is exchange. Everybody knows that if the, if the lobbyist really wants to get a hearing on what, what he's asked for, the lobbyist will show up at the reception and there will be a punch bowl in the center of the room that the lobbyist knows I need to put my check in there and donate to the political action committee. That's how I'm going to get a, a hearing. Uh, and so the lobbyist helps the legislator. The legislator helps the lobbyist. There's an exchange that takes place. And it's not like a marketplace. It is a marketplace. But there's one crucial difference here. Um, and, uh, and that is not everybody can engage in that exchange process. Some people are well-connected, uh, lobbyists, legislators, they uh, top bureaucrats, maybe corporate executives. There's a small group, they face low transaction costs, they're able to exchange. Most people, people like me, I'm guessing people like you, we really don't have a way to get involved in the exchange, right? So there, so there's a lot to this idea of politics as exchange, but one big aspect of it is only a few people can engage in that exchange. Most people are excluded from exchanging from this politics as exchange, uh, and, and that includes most voters and citizens. I was going to say, but we vote. How are we excluded from this process? We vote. Yeah, we do vote. Uh, and ultimately, in, in a sense, all of the votes, when we add them up, they determine who holds political power. Uh, but each individual just has one vote. And you know your one vote isn't going to determine the outcome of, of an election. So voters have an incentive to be, to use the term that public choice people use, they have an incentive to be rationally ignorant. You really don't have an incentive to collect up a lot of information about politics, about issues, even about candidates. Uh, now, I, I talk to my classes about this, and they push back on that. No, no, we're informed. We know what's going on, they claim. And uh, so one way that I disabuse them <laughs> of that idea is in election years. I did that this fall because we had an election in November. In election years, uh, in the fall semester, first day of class, I give them a pop quiz. <laughs> and uh, what I ask them on the quiz is, tell me the names of your U.S. senators. Tell me the name of your representative in the House of Representatives. And I ask them, are any of them up for re-election? And if so, tell me the names of the people they're running against. I don't ask them about any public policies. I don't ask them what are the what's this person's view on you know controversial issues or any issues. I just tell tell me the names of, of your representatives. Uh, I had about thirty percent of my class this fall was able to do that. I think that's uh, a better percentage than my classes most of the time. I believe I stole this idea from you. I do this in my public choice classes at the start of every semester. And it's not uh, it's not an inspiring result. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I also uh, on on that quiz um, here at Florida State University, I also ask them, "What's the name of the basketball coach? What's the name of the football coach here at Florida State?" <laughs> uh, and I get about the same percentage of students can answer that. Except I actually they did pretty well on the football coach this year, uh, <laughs> but much better than naming the the politicians. But the reason that I that I do that, you know, is because you know. Voters, citizens have an incentive to be rationally ignorant. Now, all of them aren't. Some people are interested in politics. They follow the news. They want to know what's going on, just like some people are interested in sports. But, I mean, you know, as a sports fan, your, your being a fan isn't going to change the outcome of the game. Your being a fan isn't, isn't going to help your team to win. And, and here you asked about voters, and it's a kind of an analogy you can go to the game, you can sit in the stands, you can cheer your team on. And indeed there is some home field or home court advantage. And so all the fans together make a difference. But what if you, the individual fan didn't show up that day, wouldn't even be noticeable, right? So although all the fans together may have an effect, each individual fan, I mean, one individual fan really has no effect. And it's the same thing with voters. So voters tend to be uh, rationally ignorant. Uh, and so that's one way we're thinking about the incentives of the individual actually leads you to a really different understanding about how that political process works. It wasn't until learning about public choice that I realized how uninformed most voters were and why. Sure. And vo voters have an incentive to cast votes for the options that make them feel good. Uh, and the options that make them feel good might not always be the options they would choose if the choice were theirs alone. Uh, because, I mean, since you know your one vote isn't going to affect the outcome of, of an election, uh, there's uh, oftentimes people might cast a vote for something they wouldn't choose if it were, if it were their choice. Uh, you know, there might be... Uh, and this is an example from Gordon Tullock, uh, uh, Jim Buchanan's uh, colleague. Uh, but uh, he wrote an article titled The Charity of the Uncharitable. You know, he thought, well, you know, take an individual who's really uncharitable. You don't want to give any money to charity because every dollar you give to charity is one last dollar you have to spend yourself. But you don't want to think of yourself as too much of a Scrooge. So you'll vote for candidates who favor more income redistribution, you know, more transfer payments, and you get a good feeling, you know, well, I'm helping out the poor, casting my vote for, for income redistribution. But your one vote isn't going to affect the outcome of the election. So, uh, you know, you get a good feeling, well, I'm doing something for, for less fortunate, but it has no actual impact on the outcome of the election. So, in you know, it's a you're not going to give your own money to charity, but you can cast that charitable vote because you know that one vote is going to determine, determine the outcome of the election. Well, one thing that you talk quite a lot about in, in the book and that Buchanan talked quite a lot about throughout his career is, is government debt. And so some of the things that you've already been mentioning kind of help us understand a little bit why government might accumulate a lot of debt but can you talk speak to that a little bit what are the incentives why do we seem why do democracies seem to accumulate so much debt um and what are kind of the consequences of this 
Yeah, the, uh, there, when Buchanan started writing about this in the 1950s, uh, the kind of conventional wisdom in economics was that the national debt really isn't a burden because we owe it to ourselves. That's the phrase that was used, we owe it to ourselves. It's some Americans who owe other Americans, and so the debt really isn't a burden uh, to Americans. That's changed a little bit because the more of U.S. debt is held by, uh, by foreigners. Uh, but nevertheless, Buchanan was looking at this idea, thinking about the burden of the debt. Oh, and there's another idea that was very common, which is you can't pass the burden of the debt on to the future because you can't use future resources today. <clears throat> so we have to pay for uh, current spending out of current resources, so the burden of the debt isn't passed on to the future. So Buchanan's looking at those arguments, and uh, and the simple logic of the way that he's thinking about this is, uh, let's uh, picture government issues debt, uh, bondholders voluntarily purchase that debt. Are they the people who bear the burden of the debt? Well, no, it's a voluntary transaction. I mean, both the borrowers and the lenders both agree to the transaction. Ultimately, down the road, as that debt matures, the interest has to be paid on the debt. Either the debt has to be paid off or it has to be refinanced. Uh, and that's done through taxation. So we're going to tax people in the future to pay the interest on the debt uh, or to, to uh, pay off the the debt or to refinance the debt. So, uh, the, and those people aren't voluntarily agreeing to the transaction. Right? So those are the people who are being coerced, the taxpayers who are forced to buy, to, to pay their taxes to service the debt. <coughs> Excuse me. Those are the people who bear the burden of the debt. Uh, and so it's a pretty simple argument you know, people who are engaging in voluntary transactions, they're better off as a result. Those are the borrowers and lenders today. People who are forced into transactions, the taxpayers in the future, those are the people who pay the cost of the debt. That's the burden of the debt. And so in the book, you do, it, it goes a little bit deeper than that, because it's not just trading, you know, future current spending for future spending or current taxes for future taxes. You do talk a bit about how it shifts how we spend the debt financing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, the problem is uh, when when we're borrowing today, uh, the burden of the debt's passed off into the future, uh, but we really don't know who the specific individuals are who are going to bear the burden of that debt, uh, and so as a result, uh, it, there's an incentive for government to borrow uh, for all, all types of projects, uh, all right? So uh, uh, the people, in the, the, the people in the present, well, you can, you can tax, but then we'll have to pay the cost today, or you can borrow, and that gives an incentive for more government spending. Uh, it gives an incentive for projects that actually may not be cost effective, but the people who are gonna bear the cost well, those are the people in the future, and we're not sure exactly who they are. So costs are something that we need to consider a lot. And 
Buchanan talks about costs in, in a very Austrian way. He talks about costs as being subjective. Um, so, so how does that change the analysis of the political process? How does that change things if we assume or recognize, not just assume, but recognize the subjectivity of, of costs? Yeah, actually, that, that idea of the subjective nature of costs goes well beyond the political process. I mean, it really starts when you think about uh, about markets and, and, and individual choice uh, in markets. Uh, you know, we as economists, we, we make the assumption that people choose the utility maximizing option. You know, that you, you, you look at the choices that are in front of you and you're thinking, which is going to give me more utility and you choose the utility maximizing option. But when you make a choice, the cost that you incur is the value of the foregone alternative. Uh, and because that alternative is foregone, you never actually know what the cost is that you're giving up. Uh, so um, I think we use an example, something like like this in the book, uh, where you know you're trying to decide: should I go out to lunch or should I go to the movies? You know, I was interested in seeing this movie, but also I I could go out to lunch. And so you decide. Well, I think I'll, I'll go out to lunch. I'll skip the movie and, and, and I'll go out to lunch. Uh, and you think that's the option that's going to give me the most utility. But the thing is, is you don't know because you didn't go to the movie. So it might have been you enjoyed your lunch, but it might have been that you enjoy would have enjoyed the movie even more. But you don't know because it's an option that you didn't take. Uh, and similarly, and again, I'm thinking about markets before I move on to politics, uh, we make the assumption in economics a lot of times that firms maximize their profits. But you can never know whether a firm is maximizing its profits because it's making a choice by these inputs, produce these outputs, go into this particular line of business. We can see the result of those choices, but what we don't see is the alternatives that are foregone. So uh, again, I think we use an example, something like this in the book, but let's say that you decide that uh, you, you have these great baking skills and you, so you're gonna open up a, a, a cookie store and you think people are gonna love these cookies, you know, and so I'm gonna open up a store, I'm gonna sell my baked goods, sell my cookies and uh, you can open up a shop. So you look, well, where should I open up my store? You say, well, I could open up my store here on Oak Street and I would pay $1,000 a month in rent for that store. Or here's another option on Elm Street. The rent is $2,000, but there's a lot more traffic going by. I'd probably get more customers, uh, you know, for if I, if I rented the $2,000 a month store rather than the $1,000 a month store. Uh, so you're trying to make a business decision here, and you decide, uh, I, mean, I think I'll go with, with Oak Street and pay $1,000 a month in rent. And so you do, and you open up your cookie store, and it's really successful, and you're making profits and everything uh, in the store, so, so good for you. Are you maximizing profit? You don't know, because if you'd opened up it on Elm Street, the rent would have been a little bit more, but maybe you would have sold a lot more. You don't know. 
right? So cost is subjective. Uh, it's the value of the foregone alternative, but because the alternative is foregone, you never know exactly what the cost is. And that's something I really hope in the next part of our conversation, I hope we explore that a little bit more um, because I want to think a little bit about, you know, what are the implications of things like cost benefit analysis? Because um, that's one of the things that uh, responsible uh, regulation is supposed to have a very well thought out cost benefit analysis. And so I think that this issue raises some some interesting challenges to how effective that might be. Um, so we're almost out of time today. So I wanted to just kind of end this part of the conversation talking a little bit about um, what Buchanan thought economists should or shouldn't do. He seemed to have very particular views, and I know this is a maybe a big topic to end on, but I would love to just hear uh, about what he thought we should steer clear of, what we as a profession, um, you know, what road we went down that he thought was particularly uh, problematic. Yeah, that is a big topic. <laughs> so we, we could talk a long time on that. But uh, just, you know, basically to, to summarize some ideas that maybe we could get into uh, uh, further in your next episode. But uh, Buchanan thought that, uh, that economics ought to be analyzing exchange uh, as opposed to analyzing choice. Uh, that a lot of prominent definitions of economics uh, focus around choice the way that people make their choices, the way that societies make their choices. Uh, a World War II analogy uh, that was been used a lot, you know, a society chooses, should we produce guns or butter? How much guns, you know, how, how much in, in butter should we uh, be producing? Uh, and Buchanan says that really what we should be analyzing is exchange. Uh, start with the idea that people know what they want, and look at the way that they interact through institutions to exchange to to get what they want. Uh, uh, so focus on the process of exchange rather than the choice that individuals make, that societies make. So that's kind of the foundation of, of where Buchanan is looking. But the, but you know the big picture is look at look at exchange, analyze exchange, rather than analyzing choice. Which is um, similar to kind of the Austrian catalactics type of approach, or I think I think Buchanan actually has, has used the phrase catalactics as well in, in perhaps that particular piece that we're referencing. Um, when you look at Buchanan's work, uh, uh, it would be, uh, I think he falls well within the Austrian camp. I no. have moments where I'm like, is he an Austrian? Isn't he an Austrian? I go back and forth a lot. Um, so I want to say thank you for spending time today, kind of touching on some of the big picture ideas. Buchanan, as you said, as we both said, is, is incredibly he was incredibly prolific, so it's very difficult to touch on, you know, everything that he contributed. But um, in our next part of our conversation, I would love to touch on 
some of the more modern applications, some of the current you know, political conversations that that maybe could benefit from a dose of, of Buchanan. So thank you so much for joining me today, Randy. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Rosie. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time.